Hello and welcome back to the Heredity podcast for March 2017. This month, genetic connectivity in sea fans and a chatty fungus. Sea fans are an iconic group of corals. If you don't know them, imagine, well, well, imagine a big fan in the sea and you're on the right track. They live in waters all over the world and are from a group called octocorals. Now, when you're a sedentary octocoral, you can't move around that much, so you have to send your offspring off floating on the currents to colonise new areas. But what happens if these new lands, or waters, become too isolated? And what does that mean for genetic connectivity? Well, this is something that Jamie Stevens from Exeter University and his team wanted to find out. So they set about investigating two species of octocorals, which live just off the UK, Ireland and Western Europe. Here's Jamie, who started with a bit more info on octocorals themselves. They are soft corals, um, and most people would uh, recognise them as sea fans or uh, dead man's fingers. Um, These are kind of like squidgy marine life. And you're interested in how the genetics works within these populations, and that means that you have to look at how these things reproduce. How, How do they reproduce? The species that we were looking at are what's called broadcast spawners. So at certain times of the year, they will um, disperse their gametes uh, into the water column and uh, they will then float on the currents and settle uh, in different um, uh, parts of the uh, ocean bed. And where they land, um, they don't always land on substrates that are suitable for them. Um, And... So you get these kind of, um, you get what we would think of as a a kind of island model, um, whereby patches of suitable habitat are separated by areas of habitat that are very much unsuitable. So we've got these sort of disparate different populations, and you wanted to understand how genetically those things were connected. Tell me about how that works and what you did. To assess um, genetic similarity and that genetic similarity may or may not ultimately tell us something about the connectivity of these populations. We had to isolate DNA from them. And having isolated the DNA, we then developed some uh, what we call microsatellite loci, which are essentially genetic markers, which tells us something uh, about just the basic levels of gene flow and connectivity or lack of connectivity Uh, between these organisms. How many different sort of uh, populations were you looking at in this study? We were looking at uh, between 20 and I think it was 27 populations of the two different species uh, in this study. Um, And these populations ranged around um, uh, southwest of England, uh, southwest Wales, um, parts of the west coast of Ireland, the region of Brittany in northwest France, and then down uh, for one of the species down uh, south into the, the bottom of Portugal. Now, now, what would you classically be expecting to see? What we would expect to see, the null hypothesis, as it were, would be uh, that would be something that we would call panmixia. I, all populations could be essentially freely intermixing so there would be no barriers to intermixing there would be no barriers to connectivity and this would this would then give a pattern of of essentially no genetic structure at its most most basic within the population 
And so that would be our kind of starting point. And I think, you know, what it looks like is that one of our species essentially accords with that that model of panmixia, whilst the other, um, it, it appears that there is some structure uh, within the data. So you found these two different genetic profiles here. What does this ultimately mean for the organisms themselves? You know, is it is it advantageous, disad- you know, disadvantageous for each of them? Without being <laughs> without being a sea fan, I can't really answer that. But from an applied perspective, I think the important thing is this type of information, this uh, hard evidence about connectivity or lack of connectivity, feeds into the planning of things like marine protected areas. The whole idea of nominating marine protected areas is a, is a much bigger topic than we've got time for here, but ultimately a lot of those uh, areas have been designated on the things like the presence or absence of rare or enigmatic species. And whilst we would like to use evidence of connectivity to understand our network, um, what we what we often find is that we don't have that evidence. And this study, in a sense, represents some of that first um, evidence. So, you know, we can start to actually get a picture for things like spacing between marine protected areas. Is this species specific or is it environment specific? So is it that one species needs to be closer together or, or perhaps would that same distance be fine with that species were there not a difference in water temperature, for example, between those two sites? One of the things that's come out of this work is a realisation is that as soon as you focus on a couple of species to try and understand connectivity in the marine environment, immediately that you focus on a couple of species, you realise that, um, I won't say that they're, they're the wrong species, but they are giving you information about those species. And, you know, it remains to be seen what will be the applicability of the um, knowledge gained from looking at those species to, to sort of a broader range of marine species. That was Jamie Stevens from the University of Exeter in the UK. OK, ready for a genetics pop quiz? Define genotype by genotype indirect genetic effects. Did you get it? If not, don't worry, we'll get to that in a second. Or rather, Nicolas Rode from the French National Institute for Agricultural Research will get to it. He's been studying these effects in one particular species of fungus, and in doing so, he found something quite surprising. The fungal communities he was studying seemed to have the ability to communicate genetic information with each other through the air. Here's Nicolas, who started with those genotype-by-genotype indirect genetic effects. We're talking about genetic effects first. So that means that the genes are responsible for the effects we're seeing. So it's not something that is environmental in sense. It's not due to temperature or things like this. It's really genetic. Um, and then uh, you could think, basically, uh, the, the fungal colony um, is changing uh, its shape, so the growth is different. The growth rate of the colony is different, um, depending on the genotype of, the, of a neighboring colony. Uh, but not only this, but also depending on the on its own genotype, basically, and on, on an interaction between its own genotype and the, the genotype of another colony. Now, you worked with a particular type of fungus in your study. Tell me about that fungus and why you chose to work with it. 
Okay, so it's Aspergillus nigrans. Um, it's a widely used fungus, um, in, in especially for genetics. I mean, it has been used uh, since the 50s. So um, even though it's not um, pathogenic uh, and it's not like a main issue for agriculture, um, it's, we know a lot about its, its genetics and the genes that are involved in, in the production of, um, of chemical compounds. So we thought it would be interesting to kind of address this kind of question in, in this model where... Um, it, it, as a second step, it would be easier to kind of dissect the, the mechanism that are responsible for the, these genotype-genotype uh, interactions. And how did you go about testing that? Tell me what you did in your experiment. So basically, we would have um, we would inoculate a, a petri dish, so it's a, just a small plate uh, with only one um, geno- like spores from one genotype, basically, and then we would use stacks of plates, basically. Uh, and so we would, for a focal genotype, we would identify the identity of the genotypes growing above it and below it within the stack. And then we used quantitative genetic uh, analysis to kind of disentangle um, the effect of um, the, the genes uh, in the in the focal genotypes and the genes in the in the social environment, so in the in the neighbor's genotypes. Now, tell me, what did you find? How were these growth rates varying depending on the genotypes of those that are around it? About. 10% of the overall variation we, we saw were actually due to this genotype-genotype interaction. So, I mean, that's quite a, um, a fair amount of variation. Yeah, that seems like quite a significant effect. You know, were they speeding up or slowing down? Was this the sort of effects you're seeing? Or, you know, or, or exactly, how do you see exactly. it? So, so basically you would have a fast-growing strain, but maybe, uh, so let's say this is genotype A, but um, depending the, on the identity of the neighbor genotype, this fast-growing uh, strain could be um, actually become kind of a slow-growing uh, strain or uh, actually faster-growing strain. Like, you know, on, on basically compared to, do it, to its average growth rate, it would grow either faster or slower uh, depending on the identity of, the, of, of its neighbors, basically. Why do these effects happen in this case, do you think? I guess you have selection uh, to kind of sense the environment, but we just have hypotheses, um, but we don't really know, basically. Then the next sort of million dollar question here is, how did they know? How are they doing this communication? Do you have any have any ideas? So that could be either um, because of changes in, uh, in the environment. So maybe humidity is a bit different um, depending on the identity of your, the neighbor gene types. Or maybe it's the, these are pro- producing volatile compounds and, and the, the identity or the concentration of these compounds could depend on the, on the identity of your neighbors. But the important thing to note here is that it looks like this mechanism is airborne. It's going through the air. Exactly, exactly. Which was quite surprising uh, to us because you don't think about fun- fun- like a fungus as a species that would communicate um, through the air, basically. And what do you think this is going to mean for our understanding of how, um, I suppose, how evolution works in these sorts of um, organisms? Or um, does it have any impacts for conservation or the way in which we might understand population structures of, of things like funguses in the wild? So I think um, first, um, I think these kind of interactions have been um, really underestimated. Um, I mean, in, in fungi in general and, and then in you know, in microbiology um, more generally. Thinking about this interaction is important. Like if you just study, um, say, a gene, for example, and you want to measure its effect on growth rate, then you need to think about the way you design your experiment um, 
if you you don't want this effect to kind of bias your, your results. So I think these are kind of direct practical implications um, for researchers. And then we'd like to kind of answer your questions about the, you know, the what are the proximate mechanisms and uh, what are the ultimate mechanisms as well? Like, do we have kin selection in, in, in fungi, for example? So depending on your relatedness uh, to your neighbor, you might grow less or to kind of, you know, free the space. Or you, could you have cooperation and then you would actually uh, grow faster? Um, so these are the questions um, I'd like to, to address in the, in the future, basically. That was Nicholas Rode from the French National Institute for Agricultural Research in France. And that's all for this episode of the Heredity Podcast. Tune in again next month and thanks for listening.